Hello and welcome to the Culture Far Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, with nigh on 30 minutes worth of art, culture, ideas, and not to put too fine a point on it, sounds. This time we're going to be devilishly kicking up that pile of nicely gathered leaves you've got there, appreciating the cairngorms, and preparing to get our way in love and meetings. But this time we start with the clandestine art of the WhatsApp audio message, the tiny sound clips that slide every now and then into a mostly text conversation on the WhatsApp messaging app are, according to Anya Gallagher, an underappreciated, under-theorised and mostly underused expressive form. That all changes now. Just walking down, hands are full. Um, I'm go home, I'm absolutely starving. There was a lot of scrolling involved to reach my oldest archived WhatsApp voice message. The date was May 27th, 2016, and the sender was my closest friend at the time. I won't reveal the gossipy and very insignificant content of his 14-second clip, but listening to it brought me straight back to that time of our lives, in that instantaneously vivid way which I feel only sound and smell can truly command. We were both living in Dublin and in our mid-twenties. It was a time before coronavirus. Rents were extortionate and Dublin was feeling uncomfortably wealthy. It was lacking in the fun that was live on the streets in the years after the recession. But still, we made do. In 2016, WhatsApp had 1 billion users worldwide. This number has since doubled. They introduced the voice recording feature in 2013, and it took a while for people to use it in great numbers. No one was fully sure of how to use it. The path wasn't as clear. And actually, although it is now much more popular as a communication platform, that sense of uncertainty still presides over it. Some people refrain from it altogether, others use it constantly. Some use it selectively. I'm one of those. Times of consciousness don't really align with a friend in Australia, so we voice message each other regularly. And there's a local friend I've fallen into voice messaging with. It's a fun, more animated way of keeping in touch. It also possibly has something to do with my appreciation of her lyrical West Kerry accent too, which otherwise gets lost when reading text, such as... Hello, Anne. It's funny these voicemails like they are close enough to a conversation. The only thing is when you're reacting to hearing somebody else saying something. Like I laughed a load of times through that and I can't remember where I laughed now. Hello. Um... It's funny these voicemails, like they're they're close enough to a conversation. The only thing is when you're reacting to hearing somebody else saying something. Like I laughed a lot of times through that, and I can't remember where I laughed now. Then again, can a one-sided conversation even count as a conversation? It's more like delivering a speech without the podium. There's no opportunity for rebuttal. You can land an intimidating nine and a half minute voice message in someone's inbox and you expect them to listen without interruption to your narcissistic rant as soon as possible. On the other hand, assuming you're not neurotic enough to review your own messages, it does allow for nuanced and spontaneous exchange. A passing comment about someone on the street you're taking perhaps, or an amusing Freudian slip that would only happen with the stream of consciousness. A voice note. (laughs) Tell me a story. Um, yeah, so, I don't know, the car rang me. Besides the narrative aspect, sound provides another way to tell a story. It can contextualise a situation in such an efficient manner, but yet it's often under-acknowledged and underutilised. 
My well-travelled friend Julie returned home in March after many months in India and habitually sent me recorded snippets of her time while she was there. No words, just background noise, with a little blurb and text. On November 12, 2016, it read, Sounds of the India-Pakistan border closing ceremony. Followed a few days later by Arti ceremony on banks of Ganja in Varanasi. One which the sole accompanying word of jungle was vital for it not to be misinterpreted as dodgy dial-up internet sounds. Then there was the slightly unnerving snippet of laughter yoga, which I think she correctly tagged as the strangest landscape of her troubles. I replied to that one with a comparative snippet of my location at orchestra rehearsal and, as you can tell, wearing a very loud and obtrusive wristwatch. being taken aback by how different our soundscapes were at the time and how different our lives were too but these brief aural snapshots we exchanged were a really nice way for us to stay connected millennials text apparently they hate phone calls they feel they're intrusive so it seems strange then that a voice note is a more popular choice for them it's uncensored without time limit, and it doesn't have to respond to anyone. Is that not the definition of intrusive? It is perhaps a representative of how our definitions and expectations are changing. Is the voice note the free speech model of our communication platforms? Free from response, challenge, critique. It's a fun medium in certain contexts, but we should be cautious about using them in place of real-time conversations, because usually that's where we find resolution. Also, the voice note is the only WhatsApp feature that still imposes the dreaded blue ticks without option of disabling, which, for a person who prefers to keep somewhat clandestine movements, can prove stressful. But that's a gripe for another day.
Anya Gallagher on the sonic potentials of WhatsApp. We scurry back into the leafscape now with botanical artist Jess Shepherd kicking up sloppy mounds as we go. Shepherd initially trained as a botanist, but now conducts her business through painting and sound recording she makes on specimen collecting trips. A subject she spent many years celebrating is leaves, poplars and castor oils, vines and cardoons, painted or printed at swollen scales, exhibited on occasion with a soundtrack made in collaboration with sound artist Hoodlum Priest. One crunchy winter, she brought culture file on a journey into the leafscape. Oh, hello, uh, my name is Jess Shepherd, and I'm a botanical painter. There is uh, a branch that would be botanical illustration, which is very precise scientific illustration. So you have dissections of the plant and scale bars. And I decided to call myself a botanical painter because there's not so much of the botanical illustration part of what I do. It's much more painterly and I'm trying to capture more of a feeling within the plant. Whenever I found a leaf to paint, I decided to take a sound recording and a field recording of, of the environment of where that leaf was found, so for the precise location. I've always recorded sound. It's something I've had a, a thing for. It's a hobby. Um, I came at it from a sort of nostalgic point of view so that when I'm older, I have something that could jog a memory so I could remember my childhood or something like that. So I would always record odd sounds, sort of closing gates and keys in the lock and things like that, as well as birdsong. I've not got any art training as such. I'm a botanist by, by training, uh, but as part of the botany courses that I've done at Plymouth University and at Edinburgh University, there was an illustrative part uh, so that we could learn an anatomy properly. With scientific illustration, you should never really depict any form of decay or if anything's been eaten or removed. And, for example, if you're painting a tulip and you've got a freak that has seven petals rather than six, you should always try and make sure you have the six because that is, that is how it should be. So with, with scientific illustration, you, you, you do need the science training because you're, you should have an awareness of how something should look and depict that. Whereas with this, I haven't done that. I've just painted what it is. The whole collection uh, is basically what I would call a botanical dystopia. I've composed each painting so that some of them have got their little bits chopped off so that they're mounted with half of a leaf missing sounds horrendous but actually aesthetically I think as a composition it does actually work. As I started working I ended up sort of actually telling a story which I didn't intend to do to begin with. Um, as a botanist I'm used to recording where I find things so I always make a note of time and place particularly when you're pressing plants in the jungle when I was working in Belize that's what you would do so I've just carried it on with my painting what happens now is if you put the GPS coordinates into Google, for example, you can actually see where I was in the world at the time I picked up that leaf. 
this one uh, is is it like a barcode? So it's 3009-2015-1946. So it was picked up at quarter to eight on the 30th of September. This particular poplar leaf, I've blown it up. This leaf is almost as big as a human being. The veins do look like little roads or fields, as if you're flying an aeroplane or looking at Google Maps. I'm trying to almost make a mockery of our idea of scale because in the natural world there is no sense of scale. Things just exist and it's, it's a human thing. We, we have this necessity to measure all the time and we will, but again it's measuring things in relation to ourselves, putting ourselves in the middle. I decided to paint the ricin leaf uh, because it is so toxic, basically. I have a fascination for all ethnobotanical plants, which basically means any plant that is useful to mankind. So that's all your medicinals, poisons, dyes, pharmaceuticals, food, that sort of thing. Uh, so the, the ricin leaf, again, is another palmate leaf. Uh, obviously quite like the palmate structure. But this one is unusual in the fact it is quite, well, it was quite coppery in its colour. It's sort of coppery red. And most of the time they are green, but the new leaves can be, have this colour, this coppery colour. And when I saw it in the sun, it just, it looked metallic. It was, it was almost silver where it was bouncing off the veins. Uh, so that's, that's how I've painted it. become very famous as a poison. It, it was mentioned, I think, in Breaking Bad, that HBO programme. Uh, as The thing about it is, what I believe it does, I think it stops uh, your ribosomes making DNA, so it basically stops protein synthesis in your body. So it's, it's a slow death, but the thing is, it is untraceable. Uh, so it is, a, it is a very popular poison, unlike arsenic or something that could be, could be traced. I don't think you can trace rice. <laughs> Yes, I've put a cabbage in, which is a bit random, uh, considering most of these have, most of the leaves have a similar feel. Um, they're all got the same sort of lighting and, and colour greens. And the, the cabbage stands out because it is quite blue rich and clearly a vegetable, not a tree. I put the cabbage in because we all get block, and including me, and I, I often get painter's block. I just had enough. And the one thing that always helps me is a cabbage. If, and there's always one in the fridge, and I get one out. And it's something to do with the way that the light hits the veins and the shadows that these very um, textured veins cast on the rest of the, of the leaf. Um, yeah, so that's why I've got a cabbage.
botanical painter and sound recorder Jess Shepherd there on the leaf world. And you can find some of Shepherd's leaves and other extreme close-ups of flora online at inkyleaves.com forward slash leafscape. Although Nan Shepherd wrote The Living Mountain, her book on the landscape of the Cairngorms, in 1944, it soon received a rejection letter and was set aside for more than 30 years before it was finally published. Many more years passed before it began to be appreciated fully, and it wasn't until about ten past six on Monday, November 16th, 2020, that Paddy Woodworth added The Living Mountain to our naturalist bookshelf. It would be a shame to come upon the concluding paragraphs of Nan Shepherd's brief, ungovernable masterpiece, The Living Mountain, before you have savoured and digested everything that has gone before. I say this because the extraordinary final statements she makes can only be supported by the intricate yet deeply grounded structure that she builds in the preceding chapters. And that's why I won't quote her conclusions here. It would be rather like landing by helicopter on the top of Everest instead of climbing it from sea level, or thinking, maybe, that you've heard Beethoven's Ninth Symphony by listening only to its final climactic gallop. Teachers of meditation sometimes suggest that we should sit like a mountain to cope with our turbulent inner weather. Nan Shepherd doesn't sit. She walks, though she often pauses. She also, quite disconcertingly, sometimes lies down and goes to sleep, on the edge of a precipice in the middle of the day, for example. Her descriptions of the joy, at once sensual and serene, of waking on the mountainside, whether in sunlight or moonlight, are one of this book's many unique pleasures. The Living Mountain has only been recently recognised as a classic, championed by another great celebrator of wild landscapes, Robert McFarlane, who introduced a new edition some years back. Shepherd herself is an enigma from the last century. She died in her native Deeside in 1981, almost five decades after three precocious novels in quick succession gave her brief moments of international literary success. The Living Mountain is her last book, and even it was finished during the Second World War. Almost total silence followed. The manuscript, she tells us in a late foreword, lay in a drawer for many years. Now an old woman, she wrote in 1977, I realised that the tale of my traffic of love with a mountain is as valid today as it was in 1945. Her traffic of love takes place entirely in the Cairngorms, source of her beloved River Dee. She treats this massive range as a single mountain with multiple peaks. She tells a story of lifelong discovery, lifelong wonder. However often I walk on them, these hills hold astonishment for me, she says. The whole wild enchantment, like a work of art, is perpetually new when one returns to it. As a young woman, she shared the classic mountaineer's obsession with the tang of heights, to be lifted as on a mighty shelf above the world. 
so she used to head doggedly for the summits on every excursion. But she gradually found that the mountain gives itself most completely when I have no destination, when I reach nowhere in particular, but have gone out merely to be with the mountain, as one visits a friend, with no intention but to be with him. Shepherd knows her natural sciences very well, but she writes like a poet. Enraptured by landscapes, plants and animals, she has seen a thousand times, yet never in quite the same way. She's exceptionally sensitive to tones of colour and intensities of scent that most of us might miss. The varied greens in clouds, the aromatic ferment of cut spruce. She pays keen attention to the myriad forms taken by the freezing of running water. If Inwits have many names for snow, Shepherd conjures up a score of vivid images for frost and ice. And she's visceral in her responses to nature. Watching swifts fly in convolutions of delight, as she says, makes her laugh aloud. A sensation of release she compares to dancing for a long time. Scientific knowledge, she says, in an insight that all good nature writers share, does not dispel mystery. And she continues, The more one learns of the intricate interplay of soil, altitude, weather, and the living tissues of plant and insect, the more the mystery deepens. She's equally observant of the diverse characters of the people of the mountains. She is as unblinkingly aware of their hardships as she is admiring of their resilience and their wit. And she knows full well that the love of mountains can lure even the best mountaineers to lonely and terrible deaths. That the mountain can become, as she says, a monstrous place. And yet she walks on. Her final three chapters, Sleep, The Senses, and finally, Being, take us way up into the high, rarefied territory I mentioned at the outset. Here, her body and her mind seamlessly engage with the very stuff of the mountain, in an ecstasy that seems both erotic and chaste. Very few people can write about this kind of experience without making our toes curl. But if you've hiked with Shepherd through the lower slopes of this book, you are likely to trust her final soaring vision. And you may feel moved, perhaps, to set out on your own intimate encounter with a living mountain, even if it's only your local hill.
Paddy Woodworth there on Nan Shepherd's The Living Mountain, our latest addition to the Naturalist Bookshelf. That book is available on its own and in a compilation with three of Shepherd's novels as The Grampian Quartet, which is published by Canongate. In a scene from the musical Hamilton that's obviously 100% historically accurate, Alexander Knightley receives some advice. He should talk less and indeed smile more, but that misses out on a crucial part of interaction, the listening bit, and indeed the hearing, which is Rob Long's tip for getting the upper hand in Hollywood in his very latest Martini Shot. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. If you've ever had a conversation with a therapist, a casual one, I mean, not the kind you have to pay for, you've probably noticed that they have a special tone of voice, a professional tone of voice that they use when, say, they want to see a movie and you want to see a different movie or you want sushi and they want Italian. It's soothing. Movies are wonderful. And it's non-confrontational. I really hear you about sushi. Such a great light option. And it's hugely effective. Tell me more about why you're so committed to sushi tonight. I want to understand you. Because, of course, everyone likes to talk, and everyone is flattered when someone says to them, improbably, tell me more. A showrunner friend of mine uses that technique when he's dealing with a difficult or recalcitrant actor. The actor will launch into some long-form speech about the lines or the story or the inability of any actor to make this seem real, and will eventually come to a natural resting place, usually with actors that's about... 17 minutes in, and rather than respond or argue or present another opinion, my showrunner friend will simply lean in a bit and furrow his brow in interest and then purr, say more, if you will, about that. And the actor will launch into another 17-minute soliloquy, and the showrunner will repeat the process, and eventually it'll all be over, and everyone will feel heard, which is what they tell you all the time in this business, and probably every business too, including the most vicious and competitive one of all, human relationships, is the whole point. They just want to be heard, agents tell clients when clients complain about executive notes. They just want to be heard, managers tell directors about their actor clients. I'd be willing to bet that deep in the legal and business affairs departments of every studio and entertainment outfit, people are saying, look, the business affairs guy over at Sony or NBC or HBO or wherever just wants to be heard. So when you say... Say more to someone. You're employing a very effective tool for communicating with entertainment industry people in specific. But here's the trick. When you successfully get someone to say more, you must always remember that the key to winning any exchange is to say less yourself. Say more is for other people, people who like to talk, people who will if the strategy works, and it always works, eventually talk themselves into a circle, tire themselves out, and end up saying, yeah, yeah, I mean, we basically, yeah, we basically agree, yeah. Clamming up, on the other hand, that's the smart play. I know writers who have said more and talked themselves out of a job by continuing to pitch a story until the pitchy's face dropped in boredom. I know writers who have said more and been fired by their agent because when he asked them to send the first draft of a script, they did so. And as everyone knows, agents and executives don't know how to evaluate scripts in progress, so hold the cards close, keep it zipped, say less. If you assume, as therapists do when interacting with everyone around them, that the people you're dealing with in the entertainment business and everywhere else have the kind of unpredictable mental health issues that can only be managed by allowing them to talk, you'll never regret it. After all, the opposite of talking isn't listening. The opposite of talking is winning. And that's it for this week. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long.
And he's right again. That is indeed it for this week. Culture File will be back again on Monday at 6.10pm in Classic Drive and in the handy weekly size at 6.30pm next Saturday. Till then, bye now.